Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Daniel chapter 9. Once again, the chronology here is a little confusing, unless you're paying very close attention. This chapter is set in the year 539 BC, which means that it happens after the visions in Daniel 7 and 8, and after the narrative of chapter 5, but before the narrative of chapter 6, or possibly around the same time as the narratives in chapter 6. So if you wanted to arrange this material in strict chronological order, you could tuck the visions of chapter 7 and 8 in before the narratives of chapter 5, and then you might tuck chapter 9 in between chapters 5 and 6, or maybe right after chapter 6. I don't know if that's helpful to you, but that's how it works out chronologically. The bottom line is that this vision happens right after Babylon has been defeated and replaced by the empire of the Medo-Persians. This happens just before Cyrus issues a decree that the Jewish people can go home meaning we are very close to the end of the exile. God has thrown down the power that defeated and subjugated the Jews, Babylon, and he has raised up a power that will be very favorable to the Jews, Persia. Daniel is reading, praying, and having visions at the turn of those times. We pick up the story at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years." Now, this is one of the few places in the Bible where we have one biblical author referring to the work of another. In 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Peter refers to the letters of the Apostle Paul as Scripture. And then here in Daniel, Daniel refers to Jeremiah as Scripture. He calls Jeremiah's writing the word of the Lord. Now, he doesn't mention the chapter or verse, which were at, those things were added much later, but obviously he's looking at Jeremiah 25, 11 to 14, and Jeremiah 29, verse 10, because those are the passages that indicate that the exile of the Jews will not last forever. Jeremiah 25, 11 to 14, for example, says, this whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Now, Daniel is reading that just after it actually happened. When prophecy becomes history, people sit up and pay attention. And that's what Daniel's doing in this passage. Now, notice that the 70 years is not so much related to the time of the exile as much as to the time of Babylon's ascendancy over the region. These nations, 
shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. In Jeremiah 29.10, it says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Some folks waste their time trying to find precise beginning and end points for the exile, which is hard because the Jews went back actually in multiple waves. It is better simply to understand this as a prophecy that Babylon's ascendancy will serve a purpose and then it will end. Daniel responds to this news by going to prayer. Verse 3 says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to your kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of this land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants the prophets." All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. 
O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your name's sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, to even begin to understand the significance of this prayer, you have to understand two other things. You have to understand, first of all, the covenants. And you have to understand the role of the prophets within the covenantal system. Now, in a program of this length, we can barely scratch the surface on things like that. In, in, in terms of covenants, the first thing you need to know is this. God intends to release the blessings of heaven into the realm of men through loving obedience. The covenants explain to people how they can remain in position to receive and enjoy these blessings. But they also explain the sort of things that will position them outside the realm of blessing. And they warn about what will happen to the people in that place. And the warnings are very specific. In Deuteronomy uh, 28, for example, it says, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book... Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Now, Daniel has seen all of those warnings realized in the history of his people, and he understands now that God has been faithful to his covenant, but his people have not. That's what's happened, right? Daniel says, we ignored God. We despised his word. We took his kindness for granted, and now we are experiencing exactly what he said we would. That's how covenants work. They establish the boundaries between the blessing and the curse of God. They are part map and part fence. The map seeks to guide you into blessing, and the fence seeks to restrain your headlong descent into curse. Now, that's just a very entry-level explanation of how covenants work. The job of the prophet now is to warn the people of God when they are crossing the lines on the map. And when they are ignoring the warnings of the fence, that's how Moses, Jeremiah, and Daniel are functioning in this story. Moses drew the lines, Jeremiah sounded the alarm, and now Daniel is directing people home. Daniel is saying, we need to repent, we need to go back, and we need to obey. That is the function of Daniel the prophet and Daniel the prayer in this passage. Pick up the narrative at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, let's just stop there and appreciate what we've just seen. In response to Daniel's prayer and confession, help from heaven was sent. As James, the brother of Jesus, said in the New Testament, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Gabriel goes on to say in verse 24, 70 weeks 
are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy thing. Now, before we get into the details, let's remember how we got here. All right, Daniel has been reading the Bible, and he has seen that the time of the Babylonian oppression will last about 70 years. He's at the end of that time, so he begins praying for a return from the exile. An angel shows up, and instead of talking about Daniel's 70, he talks about seven 70s or 77s, which is kind of a way of saying that he is speaking about a much more significant return from exile. Yes, Daniel, your 70 is at an end, but there is much more that needs to be done before the people of God can really come home from exile. All right, that's the sense of the symbol. Thus, the return from exile now becomes a type or anticipation of our ultimate salvation in Christ, just like the Exodus or the flood is an anticipation of our ultimate salvation in Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ right? So Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our ark. Jesus is our ultimate return from exile. That's what this is about. Now listen to what Gabriel says has to happen before people can really and truly and ultimately come home to God. He says that this time period that is required, that has been set aside, this 77s, will be used to do six things. Number one, to finish transgression. Number two, to end sin. Number three, to atone for wickedness. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and profit. And number six, to anoint the most holy. Well, to state the obvious, those all sound like Jesus things, right? Jesus brings an end to sin and transgression. Jesus atones for wickedness. Jesus dealt once and for all with the real problem. The real reason God's people are in exile is sin. And Jesus dealt with it definitively on the cross. He said, it is finished. In his life and in his death, the real barrier between God and man has been definitively dealt with. Now, the last three things on that list are all positive things. Jesus also brought in everlasting righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus also sealed up vision and profit. Now, sealing in the Old Testament has to do with affirming or authenticating. That's what you used the seal for. So Gabriel is saying that this time period will end with all the visions and dreams and declarations of the prophets having been proved real in Christ. The coming of Christ will show that not one of the promises of God has fallen to the ground. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This time will also be used, Gabriel says, to anoint the most holy. Now, that could grammatically refer to a place or it could refer to a person. We remember that the word Christ means anointed one. So, so again, I see this as referring to Jesus Christ. This is saying that the real exile will be ended only through the life, death, resurrection, intercession, reign, and return of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, I think it is likely 
that this passage is an example of what scholars refer to as prophetic telescoping, meaning that it refers at a single glance to the work accomplished in both of Christ's comings. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary, for example, takes that view. It says, if we may tentatively interpret the verse, it is speaking of the accomplishment of God's purpose for all history. If we look at this from our vantage point, it was accomplished partly in the coming of Christ, but it still has to be consummated. If the historical work of Christ and his second coming are telescoped, this is not unusual, even in the New Testament. So we're talking here about things Jesus does in his two comings to finally and truly end the exile of God's people. So let's go back into the text at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, most translations will use the term weeks, but Hebrew scholars will tell you that it isn't actually the word four weeks. The vowels are different. It is technically seven sevens. So obviously this is symbolic language. Gabriel divides up the time that has been appointed into three sets. In the first one, the smaller one, we expect an anointed prince. Not, not the anointed one, but an anointed one, an anointed prince who will come and rebuild Jerusalem in troubled times. Now, many scholars understand this as Cyrus the Persian. He is called an anointed one, a God-blessed ruler in Isaiah 45 verse 1. And he issued a decree to rebuild the holy city. So that seems to make sense. We jump back in at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This would be now after the first two of the three parts of the 77s. This is confusing, I grant you. After the first part, the little one, and then that longer one, we're now up to 69 sevens. At that point, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, that sounds very much like the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So again, this sounds like we are talking about Jesus. Verse 26 goes on to say, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, here is where uh, many interpretations begin to diverge here. Some see this as referring to the future army of Antichrist, which is the dispensational view. But others understand this as referring to the armies of Rome and to Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 69-70. Now, that, I think, is the easier view grammatically and contextually. So, Gabriel is saying that after Christ is cut off, Rome will destroy the holy city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, as indeed it did. Verse 27 says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations 
shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, this is the most disputed verse in the chapter and perhaps in the entire Old Testament. The key question is this, who is the he at the start of verse 27? Some take it to refer to the champion of God's cause, that is, to Jesus Christ, and they make reference to his putting an end to sacrifice through his own death on the cross. Others take it to refer to the enemy of God's cause, that is, Antichrist, who may be Titus in one generation and someone else in another generation, but what really matters is the spiritual Antichrist behind. And so they see the spiritual Antichrist as the he, and he forces people into a false covenant and makes war against the worship and people of God. This will be allowed to go on for a short time, but then at the end, he will be judged and decisively thrown down. Now, I tend to favor the latter view. I've already said that the book of Daniel introduces a pattern of Antichrist. It can speak of Antiochus Epiphanes as a pattern for the Antichrist. And of course, the Apostle John said that many Antichrists are out in the world, and we're to look for the pattern, the end, which is the Antichrist. So Antichrist could be Antiochus Epiphanes. It can be Titus. But then ultimately, it's the spirit behind that matters. And that spirit will culminate in an ultimate Antichrist who will for a time harass and oppress the people of God, but who will in the end be decisively and finally thrown down. So I think that's what's in view here. I believe that Gabriel has been telling Daniel how the real exile of God's people will be ended. He is saying, that Jesus will come and make an end to sin. He will bring in eternal righteousness. He will validate and confirm all the promises promises and prophecies of God. He will establish a new place of mercy and meeting between God and man. And then, during a set time of delay, his purpose will be opposed by an enemy. This enemy will harass and oppress God's people for a set time. But then, in the end, he will be judged and cast down. In the end, at a time of his own choosing, he will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever. Matthew 13 41 to 43. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.